What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by the one and only Bobby J. So if you've been on my Tuesday night spaces, you've heard Bobby J. He's an expert in the bond area. So I know uh, a lot of people in the millennial generation maybe have never really had any exposure to bonds or, uh, you know, I've never invested in them, don't really know too much about the market. So I tried to get Bobby J in here to give a little bit of a master class as to what is going on. We gave, uh, you know, a little bit of a background of his upbringing, overall how he sees where we're at, bonds, where we are and how we got here, positioning and the art of the 64 portfolio. Is it actually needed or is it dead? I don't know. You have to tune in to find out. And then lastly, we get into the European bond situation. And as always, ladies and gents, this is not financial advice and should never be taken as financial advice. Both Bobby J and I are not financial advisors and everything you hear in this is strictly the opinion of both Bobby J and myself. So please, please, please do not take it as financial advice. We're just trying to help educate and help people understand as well as learn through discussion, you know, where people have different, you know, experiences and marks of life and everything like that, how they kind of view the market and everything like that is going on with that as well. So on that note, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, and I've got a very, very special guest. If you've joined me on the Tuesday night spaces at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, you'll recognize the voice. I've got Bobby J, one of the best uh, Bond experts on Twitter spaces, I believe. I mean, I always really, really enjoy hearing everything he's got to say, and I always, you know, kind of pass the mic to him when we're getting into the Bond situation. So, Bobby J, how are you doing today? Pretty good, and thank you. Uh, it's nice to meet you face-to-face, camera-to-camera. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I feel like we've been doing these Twitter spaces back and forth for so long, um, but we haven't really met, I guess, either over camera or, uh, you know, I guess outside of that realm. So uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your background and how you got to, you know, become the expert in bonds that you are today? Yeah, well, it- I, I've never called myself an expert because I'm always feel I always feel like on a scale of one to ten I'm uh, at a seven because the world keeps changing and there's more to learn and uh, we certainly are in an environment now where the deck has been reshuffled. But uh, I would I would um, summarize my career as uh, varied uh, and I've always tried to uh, jump a little bit into different fields so that. At the end of the day, I would have a collection of experiences that I felt could um, separate me from from other people and also putting myself in an uncomfortable position of having to learn uh, new new uh, skills. So um, I started out uh, in college working in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I also drove a cab in New York City, which I felt has helped me a lot in in many respects uh, dealing with people. But I worked at um, Squibb, a manufacturing uh, company for pharmaceuticals, and I learned uh, a lot about accounting, uh, manufacturing operations, uh, and that really helped me uh, later on in the securities industry. After grad school, I went to work for Arthur Young, which is now Ernst & Young, and I started off in their manufacturing practice, and I switched over to banking because we had such a high demand of bank consulting engagements because we were located uh, in New York City. Uh, and I did work for Chase Manhattan Bank, EF Hutton, uh, and um, various um, savings and loans, uh, doing uh, acquisitions, due diligence, and looking at interest rate risk. So that was my first foray into uh, rates and asset liability management and interest rate risk. And then uh, after Arthur Young, I moved into the securities industry. I was an equity analyst and a bond analyst. And then I moved to the trading desk at Merrill Lynch during the banking crisis in 1991 because uh, 
myself and um, a couple other analysts came up with the idea of uh, trying to hedge out the corporate bond desk uh, with equities. And we saw uh, bank stocks like Citigroup uh, go from 35 to uh, maybe I think it was three or $4 price. And we had a ton of bank failures in that period, including Bank of New England. And then we had a lot of consolidation. So uh, I took that experience and I leveraged that into um, into um, trading, research trading. And then I went over to the buy side and became a portfolio manager. Wow. So you, you've been through, through a lot and it seems like you've, uh, you know, had some unique experience to kind of get yourself started. So, uh, you know, did you always kind of have some inclination towards finance or banking or anything like that? Um, you know, what kind of, I guess, drove you to get there? Because, you know, obviously starting off as in the pharmaceutical industry and then, you know, even a cab driver, uh, was there something that you can kind of point to maybe, you know, family upbringing of uh, just some, or some just general interest well, on, on the yeah, I, I got I didn't get much uh, career counseling from my my parents at all. They were just you know letting me find my own way. Um, but it's interesting in retrospect, I realized that they met at S and P, so maybe that was an indication. Um, there you I, go. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know about, but. Um, it, it was just mainly curiosity um, and it was exciting to be uh, on a trading desk. I had applied to go into the financial institutions group at Solomon Brothers, uh, but I didn't get that job. And it, I'm, I'm glad in retrospect that I didn't get that job because I wouldn't have gone, I would have gone into investment banking. Um, and I don't, I don't think I was uh, suited for that at the time. But I really enjoyed having been in research, uh, being a trader, uh, and then being a portfolio manager and investment strategist. And eventually, I helped to co-found with two other colleagues, uh, Bob and Ira, a company called Times Square Capital Management. And Times Square is still around today, but um, the fixed income part went over to Bear Stearns. And I was at Bear Stearns. Uh, I left... Um, in December of 2007, but um, I sat 10 feet away from the group um, that um, was stressed uh, with the, the mortgage hedge fund. And um, I didn't fully comprehend what was going on there, even though it was 10 feet away from me. <laughs> but um, I knew I knew something. Uh, I knew th- that there was something really serious going on because of what I could see in the bond portfolios. Yeah. And I guess that brings me to, you know, what, what's going on right now, right? There's, you've been through, you know, various market turns and and things like that. And it seems like now everybody's kind of saying it's unprecedented times, but a lot of these investors have kind of come in, you know, maybe like myself, for example, I started investing around, uh, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014. So around that time when everything was kind of just going up and continually going up. And then now we see the COVID crash, COVID recovery, and now we're probably seeing something that's a little bit more serious uh, in, in maybe a recession or even a global depression. So, uh, you know, how are you viewing this overall um, environment? And is there anything maybe in your past experience that you can kind of compare this one to? Um, I think um, this is completely different. And I think we have to step back and look at uh, what has happened over the last 20 years, because uh, I know from where we sit today, we're looking week to week. We discuss events of the day and we look uh, from month to month. But I think in in hindsight, in, in history, this will be looked at in terms of decades, and I think what is really different is the um, the rapid increase in global debt from 200 trillion to 300 trillion over the the uh, last 15 years, uh, and we also had uh, three very expensive fiscal uh, demands with the great financial crisis, uh, the spending in the Middle East. And then COVID. 
So those three uh, events or those three uh, processes have uh, run up the uh, U.S. debt uh, to, uh, you know, we're knocking on the door of 30 trillion at the moment. And so one thing um, that is worth talking about is the fact that for years, people have been concerned about the debt levels and increasing. And so what happens over time is uh, people, people's predictions just didn't come through over the last decade. And that's partially because the central banks stepped in and have um, laundered credit risk into uh, duration risk. But, uh, but because it was never a problem, we've kind of lulled ourselves to sleep to thinking that it won't be a problem. So I think this is going to be, I think the situation, um, Brandon, is, is something we're going to be struggling with for the next uh, five years to 10 years. I don't think it's going to be resolved. And we're, we're, we're looking for short-term resolutions, like maybe there'll be a Fed pivot or um, maybe we'll avoid recession uh, or inflation will be coming down. Uh, I think the backdrop because of the debt levels is going to, this is going to be uh, a, a long war with, with many, many battles in it and many twists and turns. Yeah. And I, uh, you know, from what I've heard and everything else, like I, I tend to agree with you. I think that this is going to be a little bit more drawn out. Um, you know, I, the thing that worries me, at least in the United States, is a lot of these policies are kind of based off, uh, you know, maybe short term fixes, as, as you're saying, because, you know, election cycles and everything like that are kind of two to four years. And, uh, you know, maybe uh, some of these politicians want to in a sense, like keep power. And so they make these decisions to make people happy in the short term. But it seems like there's a lot of, uh, you know, underlying issues that need to be addressed. And and maybe it's something that, you know, it'll take five to 10 years to kind of get over. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think it was very well said, but I want to get into to bonds. Um, because, you know, this is something that I think a lot of newer investors that have gotten into have kind of just you know, don't don't really understand the bond market or get into it. Um, you know, they just invest purely in equities or, you know, getting into some of these, you know, what is it like maybe some of these GameStop kind of uh, stocks or everything like that. So um, why don't you get into the, the bond market? Like, where are we and uh, how did we kind of get to where we're at right now? Yeah, yeah. I think we're here. Uh, because of the debt increases and also because uh, we've had central banks having to intervene in the markets, uh, specifically during um, the great financial crisis and COVID. And then we transitioned into um, fiscal spending to pick up the slack because we were running out of effectiveness with monetary policy. Um, so, uh, what has happened is now central banks have to be concerned about four issues outstanding. They have to be concerned about inflation. They need to be concerned about employment and the economy, which they're trying to slow down. They need to be concerned about interest expense at the federal level, because that could cause financial instability as well. If, if the cost of financing the U.S. debt um, increases to, let's say, 6% a year, uh, that means we have uh, a $1.8 trillion uh, annual interest expense deficit. And then, most importantly, they have to be concerned with financial stability. So we, this, this situation recently that we've seen in the United Kingdom uh, is a perfect example. I think uh, yesterday um, uh, when Trust resigned, um, she maybe gave a, um, a nod to the U.S. and, and, um, and forewarned that um, the U.K. could be a glimpse of coming attractions. And what I mean by that is that there, there is kind of competing forces. You have the central banks, uh, 
you have the Treasury or the Exchequer, and then you have Parliament and Congress. And um, one of them is managing the country's liabilities, the Treasuries. Uh, one of them is creating liabilities, Congress uh, and Parliament. And one of them is trying to lubricate the system, uh, the Federal Reserve. And I think we're coming to a period that it's that the era of central bank dominance uh, will be winding down and questioned because the tools that they profess to have, they don't have. And I, I, I'll point to two, two things specifically. Their ability to forecast the long term is, is no better than anybody else's. And if you want to know about the difficulty in making predictions and the success rate of predictions, you could just, you know, turn on uh, the TV and hear uh, people's predictions. But you can also read a book called Super Forecasting, which which highlights how difficult it is to make uh, predictions. So one of the binds that the central banks have gotten themselves into is they've taken on big positions as if if they were a hedge fund, uh, and they had a $9 trillion uh, position in their hedge fund, uh, they are kind of implying that they can see into the future and that their position will be okay. And it turns out that they can't see into the future. Uh, they are not, they don't have any particular advantage over, uh, let's say, BlackRock or PIMCO in predicting inflation and interest rates. And now they've been um, backed into a corner because they have this huge position on with quantitative easing. And they've kind of given a, a wink and a nod to governments that they have their back, but they don't have their back. And the second thing I point to is they have proclaimed uh, and central bank chairs over the last um, two decades have uh, proclaimed constantly that they have the tools to fight inflation. And then, uh, and in fact, when, the, when, when Powell was questioned about the, uh, is inflation transitory? He, you know, he said, yes, it's transitory, which, you know, points to their prediction capability, but also that if it's not transitory, we have the, the tools to get it under control. And then he kind of, taps himself out and says, well, we may not have the tools because it's supply uh, chain driven uh, or there's other factors. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, obviously very well said, but there's, you know, a, a lot of, I guess, underlying issues, kind of like you mentioned, where it might be supply chain issues, maybe it's uh, some of the monetary policy as well, but they're kind of like pulling these levers and it doesn't seem like they're their ability to forecast is, you know, is kind of diminishing. And so, you know, I guess on that note, like, where do we go from there? If like the central banks are kind of, uh, I guess, losing a step. Yeah. Um, so where do we go from here? Well, let me tell you what the um, a happy, um, a happy result of all this could be just to put in a, um, a dose of optimism is that um, the way that we can work off these debt levels would be a productivity surge. And there's plenty of areas that have um, low efficiency and um, poor productivity, uh, including healthcare, education, and the public sector. Um, so that ultimately is the only way out of um, this current situation and it just doesn't seem to be uh, a solution that um, policymakers see as, you know, as urgent and as the, the only chance. In terms of managing their way out of the situation with the same old tools, right? I mean, if you wake up and you do the same habits every day and the same routines uh, with the same tools, um, you, you, you kind of fall into a uh, pit of not seeing the bigger picture and not knowing that, um, that the, that the current tools are not working and, and really trying to design new tools 
to uh, address the situation. But um, yeah, I, I, I would say that they're in a very helpless position at the moment. Yeah. And it seems like it seems like that way. in you know, not only in the United States, but also in Europe. Um, so <clears throat> I think there's been a lot of like interesting kind of tidbits that we've gone through on the spaces and the European bond situation. Um, but I'd like to, yeah, get into your thoughts on, you know, what all is going on there. And, you know, I know we've kind of gone over the Italian bond situation, but I want to hear, you know, your thoughts on what all is going on in Europe in both the bond and the banking system. Yep. But one thing I, I, I kind of left out that I'll just throw in is that we have to stop looking at the central bank, the treasury and Congress and fiscal spending as three separate uh, independent uh, boxes that are not responsible for the other boxes. This is not a union shop. If you ever worked in a union or, or managed union employees um, and there are specific tasks and role for the each for each union uh, player. And I, I feel that these groups have union mentality. Well, we don't really comment on fiscal policy. Well, how can you not incorporate uh, fiscal policy into your projections and into your monetary policy, right? If you're, if you're thinking about global warming, um, other aspects of the economy, and you have opinions on that, why would you not have a, an opinion on fiscal policy? And I know we've referred to the recent um, work by uh, Hanno Lustig, who's been really uh, good at busting open this myth. Uh, but that has to end, Brandon. But going back, so that's the same battle we have in Europe. And just to give a backdrop on Europe, um, Europe is very different from the United States. Um, and there's there's several key differences. Number one, there's not a pan-European banking system. Uh, they are divided by language, by different laws. Uh, they may share, Europe may share the same checkbooks in a way. Uh, they may share the same central banks, but they have uh, various countries going in different directions. And so they don't have the same capital markets that we do. They have a higher reliance on bank loans than, than bond markets than we do. And if you look at the performance of European bank stocks since 2000, um, it's had a negative return for 22 years. And Credit Suisse uh, stock price is lower today than it was in 1996. So if, if you want to use that to take the temperature uh, of, of Europe, it's a very good indicator that uh, Europe has a uh, serious low-grade fever that just won't go away uh, through an expansion or through a decline, and it's yet to be addressed. It's still overbanked. We have about 85,000 bank branches um, in this country. I think Europe has um, maybe closer to double that. I'd have to go back and look at that. The ROE, uh, the ROEs at the European banks are generally below six, 7%, uh, where we have uh, a JP Morgan that has a 13, 14% return on equity. So the European banks don't have the earnings power to, to recover from lending mistakes. So that's one problem, right? Weak banking system, not strong earnings. Second, Europe doesn't have the technology um, that we have. They don't have the uh, Apples, the Amazons, uh, and the Googles driving their economy and creating value. Um, thirdly, um, they um, adopted the policy of negative interest rates, which um, it turned out to be a, a disaster. And another flaw economists have is they don't pay enough attention to the principles of finance and accounting. And the principles of finance and accounting um, say that negative rates are not good uh, for bank 
financial statements, uh, even though they may sound good to an economist who is experimenting uh, with our money. So um, the, the current situation in Europe, uh, when rates were brought down to the zero bound and to negative territory, is that a lot of bonds were issued at those levels. And, and so they took the credit risk out of the system. They securitized uh, bad bank loans in Italy and they uh, changed those into uh, government bonds and issued them near zero. So when you issue a bond near zero, you're creating much more duration risk because the price change is much more drastic uh, on a uh, increase in interest rates than it would be if you had a four or five percent coupon. So right now, um, they're sitting on a duration uh, time bomb. And on top of that, a lot of the European banks, uh, particularly in Italy, have a uh, fair amount of government bonds, sovereign bonds on their balance sheets. Yeah, and it seems like there's a, there's a lot, you know, uh, obviously some more like geopolitical factors too going on in Europe, obviously with the, the war on Russia and Ukraine and, and everything else and the potential, you know, energy crisis with, with Germany. So it seems like there's a lot of, I guess, underlying issues with Europe, maybe more so or, you know, probably more so than, than the United States right now. Um, and so, you know, with all this, um, obviously, you know, you're, you're bonds guy and, and everything else. But how does this, I guess, kind of affect the overall global macro, you know, global economy? Because, you know, at this point, it seems like both the United States and Europe and Asia, China, what have you, are, are all kind of connected in some way, shape or form in this global, you know, global economy. So obviously, if Europe suffers, I feel like the rest of the world is going to suffer pretty, pretty, uh, you know, along the same lines. So, you know, do you kind of believe that school of thought as well? Or do you think maybe some some countries here or there in Europe are going to, you know, feel it the worst and, you know, some other places might not? Well, that's a loaded question. Um, it's it's the question, but um, it's not a it's it, it's a simple answer with a complicated explanation. And the war in the Ukraine and the um, the energy repercussions from that is something that Europe could not afford, cannot afford. It is really the worst case scenario um, because it's fueling inflation even more and um, it's going to create some other problems, which we're seeing partially through the refugee um, uh, migration process <clears throat> that is going on. But um, we, the thing that we need to keep an eye on, and I know we see people in Twitter spaces saying, oh, they're watching the Credit Suisse um, CDS spreads, right? I mean, CDS spreads are, are fine, but that's just a market opinion. And of course, it could affect the funding costs. But the real story is going to be when non-performing loans increase in Italy because of the slowing economy. Bear in mind that the European, that the Italian economy um, has grown at a sub 2% rate for the last 25 years. And, um, and a lot of the Italian economy is underground or off the books. And after the financial crisis uh, in 2011, uh, Italian non-performing loans peaked at 18% of total loans uh, in 2016 or 17 and have subsequently declined down to 4% because some of those loans were securitized, hit with a, uh, backed with a government guarantee and they uh, pulled them off the bank's balance sheets. Now, some of, the, some of those securitized loans now are going to be facing some problems uh, when the European economy slows down. And I think it's going to be uh, uh, stressful to the system. And they, they kind of have something in Europe called um, a doom loop. And 
Marcus Brunemeyer of Princeton is, uh, has uh, graphically explained this doom loop in Europe, but if non-performing loans go up at Italian bank, um, that in turn uh, could push uh, Italian bond yields higher because Italy is going to have to deal with the banking risk. And when those Italian bond yields go higher, uh, they are a big position on the bank's balance sheets. And that's going to make further impairments to uh, the equity of Italian banks. So it's a cycle, non-performing, sovereign debt, uh, lower equity, uh, more non-performing. And um, and also it will choke off credit. So I, I happen to believe, as I've been saying since the first um, invasion uh, week in the Ukraine, that if there is going to be a crisis, uh, a global crisis, uh, I do believe it's going to be more sovereign related and not that it's going to be a sovereign default, but it's and it's going to it's going to come out of um, uh, Italy as kind of the first area to watch. And I was quite surprised that um, my prediction capability uh, was wrong. I'm not surprised about that. But I think the UK was kind of like uh if if you had the UK in fantasy football, um, depending on what you were betting, uh, that would be the surprise. That would that would be the surprise of the uh, the year. Yeah, for sure. And you know, you, we we kind of get into you know this whole situation, but I want to get into your view on you know how you see it as more duration risk. Uh, you know, opposed to kind of what everybody else is saying on on financial Twitter. So, you know, why don't you get into to the to that aspect? Right. So, you know, I've posted um, on Twitter Spaces numerous times a bond calculator, and I think um, people need to be familiar with the um, the function of of calculating yield and price on bonds. Um, before they um, speak about credit in Twitter spaces. Um, because um, it, it, if you play around with that a bond calculator and you put a bond in that has uh, a zero coupon and uh, is issued at a near zero rate uh, and you put a 10-year maturity in there and then you raise the current yield from zero to um, 4%, you can have a 30% decline in the price of the bond. Now that's a sovereign bond, right? Now we all jump up and down if high yield spreads widen, but, and what does is, what is the widening of high yield spreads do? Well, it, it lowers the bond price. That's what we're really concerned about, right? The lower, but everybody's kind of spread focused because that's kind of the media uh, version of it. And if you want to get to the next level of understanding bonds, do yourself a favor, Google financial bond calculator and play with it and you'll see what's going on. But to give you an example, Greek bonds that uh, were issued at 1%, uh, the the average maturity on Greek debt has uh, termed out to about 28 years. So if you have a 25-year bond, Greek bond, that was issued at 1%, and the Greek yields go up to, I don't know, 4 or 5%, whatever it is, uh, that bond price goes from par to 30. Now, if a high-yield bond in this, in, 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 or the high-yield bond market in the U.S. went from uh, par to 30, or par to 60, or par to 50, uh, or if equity prices were down 70%, it would be the only topic in media and spaces in Clubhouse. But this is not, this is not um, front and center in our discussions, Brandon, is it? No, I would not say it is. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it just seems like, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, 
No, interesting. It's more so, I guess, people are not really, I guess, diving into to the few to the issues. I want to say. I think that you know everybody's kind of, I guess, more speculative, or the people in these spaces have not been kind of analyzing the bond market, and that's why you know I, I'm really enjoying this conversation here with you today. Um, and I want to get into, I guess, more so of you know what uh, the central bank and the Federal Reserve are kind of you know, how they're, they're kind of pulling the strings to try to get, you know, this, everything down, essentially. But, um, you know, I, I want to get into, you know, we, we talk, spoke a little pre-show about the central banks and their four mandates. Um, so I don't know if you want to get into those four mandates or have me list them off and we can get into them one by one. But um, yeah, I guess go, go ahead and go through the, the central banks and the, the four uh, mandates. Right. Uh, and they're not declared mandates, but we know that they're, they're responsibilities. We know we don't hear that financial stability is a Fed mandate, but we know it is. Right. And yeah, exactly. uh, we know that employment is and we know that inflation is. And but it's never touted that uh, making sure that rates don't go up too high because it would be create a fiscal problem. Uh, which would lead to a financial stability problem. So um, it's 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 a lot more nuanced than they uh, would lead us to believe. Um, so it seems that the central banks are going to have to perform triage, Brandon. They're not going to um, be able to just focus on one mandate and say, I'm going to just put the other ones on the side and um, and we're just we're just committed to bringing down inflation no matter what, right? The opposite of Draghi's no matter what, whatever it takes. And they've given that impression. But bear in mind, a lot of what central banks say goes under the category of of um, of guidance, right? Future guidance, because that is also a policy tool to keep rates lower. Just like when COVID hit, they uh, made the commitment that they wouldn't even think about thinking about raising rates till 2023 and not raising rates till 2024. Well, it's easy to, to talk the talk than to walk the walk here. And um, they, they had to reverse that. So my guess is that we're seeing elements of financial uh, instability in the system. And we're not seeing it all, by the way, at the moment. Um, we, we saw it in the UK, but I think the interest rate risk and the damage that pension funds may be facing, insurance companies could be facing, and other levered bond positions that are lying in the bushes uh, we have not seen um, the the explosions that are occurring uh, on balance sheets at at the moment. They're not they're not the kind of um, explosions that would uh, be reported immediately and cause a liquidity crisis immediately. Let's say if a U.S. bank uh, had one of those problems. So they're, I, don't want, I don't want to say they're off balance sheet, but they're off the main screen and to the side. And I think um, the central bank is very mindful of that. And another thing that I find that is not a good way of thinking about central bank policy is uh, when will the Fed pivot? Right. So we're watching the Fed. We don't need to watch the Fed. We need to watch the markets and the economy because um, we, you know, if we want to see the whole court, right, we should be watching the hips of the economy because, you know, the Fed will try to fake uh, right and go left, but the hips can't do that. And uh, we need to be focusing on that because that's what the bond market will react to. And the bond market uh, will pivot uh, before the Fed does, as it always does. And there's no sense in parsing all the, the language and the forward guidance 
which is also meant to um, obfuscate. Uh, and uh, we really need to be uh, alert to more situations like we saw with the UK pension funds. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, for those who maybe didn't catch it, uh, their unofficial mandates, of course, of the central bank are inflation, employment, financial st stability and financing government debt. And so, you know, I think like like you said, they're they're they don't really, I guess, you know, have that official you know responsibility. But uh, we know that everything that they do and their, their kind of moves, um, you know, uh, affect all of that. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if you saw this, or there, this might be kind of breaking news. Um, it kind of just got reported right now, too, that the Federal Reserve is going to keep raising interest rates by 75 basis points at their next meeting in, um, in November. And that was reported by the Wall Street Journal this morning. We're recording on uh, the 21st. Um, so uh, I'd, I'd like to hear, I guess, your thoughts on the Fed's, you know. Did, did, um, is that something that um, is classified as a whisper to the press or um, was there a Fed statement? Uh, there, I mean, I, I saw it reported by Wall Street Journal. So I imagine it was kind of a whisper to the press. Um, and now it's kind of all over Twitter, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think um, the the, the Fed wishes they had started um, uh, reversing monetary policy earlier um, because the other thing that they're fighting, which is this is really, really, really important, is the lags of monetary policy. And the lags of monetary policy, there's papers that you can look up and find. Um, the, the estimates on the lags of policy could be anywhere from nine months to two years. So in effect, uh, there's been really hawkish talk by the Fed, but we still have a Fed funds rate that is 400 basis points below the inflation rate. And if, if you heard all the talk and, um, chest pounding, you would think that rates were much higher today, uh, but they've, they've done, I would say, the minimum on rate increases. Um, the pace is picked up, but that's only because they had a late start out of the gate. So late start out of the gate doesn't mean you're going to win the race. Um, and so uh, they're, they're, rowing as fast as they can right now. Uh, but it seems to me that they're much better off um, acting now in a drastic manner. Uh, but they have to be sweating bullets because it's hard for them to get their bearings at the moment. Uh, because if we look at the consumer balance sheets, and that's the other thing we have to be mindful of. It's not an even sector problem uh, currently, right? We're seeing the problems are going to develop in the housing market. The credit markets are still okay at this minute. Uh, we have severe problems in Europe with sovereign debt prices. Uh, the equity market, manageable sell-off, nothing uh, drastic yet and uh, still above the levels of three, four years ago. Uh, so th there's been no major disruption yet in the U.S., but if there is, um, they are going to have to reverse course um, and, and make sure that financial stability is front and center. I can't imagine them ignoring financial stability uh, in their fight against inflation. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that they're just kind of trying to shock the system, it seems, you know, they're raising interest rates at a, at an unprecedented level. Um, and I think that they're just, you know, like you said, I agree that they're, they're kind of, I guess, trying to make up for not raising interest rates anytime sooner. And so what they're doing is just, you know, raising them really quickly right now, shock it, maybe, you know, increase unemployment right away. I don't know if there's going to be a, a Fed pivot, kind of like everybody's screaming from the rooftops at this point. I think that they're, 
you know, going to have to probably let it play out for a little bit. Um, you know, maybe they'll stop raising interest rates, but it's something that they, you know, eventually need to just kind of keep them elevated. And I don't know if we'll ever see, you know, the interest rates as low as we saw them, you know, pre-COVID. Um, and I think this is something that kind of has needed to happen as like everything in the market has kind of been overvalued and, and overpriced. And it's been one of those things where no matter what you buy, everything's going up. Um, and so I think this is, you know, a, a kind of uh, necessary evil at some point. Um, I think, you know, like you said, it's it's a little bit more reactionary and they're kind of dealing with some of this, uh, you know, more, I guess, uh, reactionary and delayed uh, response from the monetary policy. And, you know, at, at, at this point, like I, I don't envy uh, Jerome Powell and the other uh, members of the Fed. Like, I don't really want that position because it's just like I it affects so much. And everybody seems like to be kind of hanging on every single word, every single press clipping or every single you know little soundbite that comes out from his meetings, trying to, to analyze everything that he's saying. And, um, you know, it, it seems kind of, uh, you know, bad that that everything's just hanging on so much and that he has you know, so much power to kind of dictate and, and pull some of these strings. But, you know, alas, that's, that's and let, kind of- let me let me uh, turn um, a question to you. Um, doesn't it seem like we need better coordination of fiscal and monetary policy? Uh, the UK was a prime extreme example. If you have these functions pulling in different directions, uh, it can be a disaster. Why aren't we coordinating these functions? Yeah, I I honestly don't know, and I I think like we we definitely should start to consider that. Um, and you know, starting to consider is probably a little bit too late at this point as as well, right? So, I I mean, I don't know. I I I think like we should. There's a lot more moves that could be made. Um, obviously, you know, it's it's from the outside looking in. Um, but I think like the only string that it seems like the Fed is kind of pulling at this point is just raising interest rates instead of doing a little bit more, like you're saying, kind of combining the fiscal and monetary policy and, and other things like that too, uh, kind of working together to combat this. But, you know, alas, like kind of he- here we are and uh, we're just kind of all trying to figure out how to tread these waters. Um, and so, you know, on that note, on on how to try- kind of tread these waters, I mean, I'm curious as somebody who's, you know, a bond guy, there's been kind of rumblings on Twitter. There's been differences of opinions that people kind of think that the, the 60, 40, you know, stock equities to bond uh, ratio portfolio is essentially dead. And I know obviously you're, you're a big bond guy and everything like that, but it seems like at this point, everybody's been able to invest, you know, hundred percent equities, everything's going up. Um, but the 64 60 40 portfolio is built for something that's a little bit more um you know uh a little bit more turbulent i guess is is the word i'll use and uh it seems like this is kind of a time that would do that um but you know bonds haven't really been performing super well just right now um so i'd be curious to hear you know your thoughts on uh you know the 60 40 portfolio now and going forward well you know that's that's a great question and i'm glad you brought that up because the 60-40 portfolio was, uh, was in hibernation for a decade. Um, because let, let's, let's think about this for one second, right? Because bond yields were unattractive and because they were packing in a lot of duration risk, who wants to buy a 10-year treasury at 80 basis points? Um, I, 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 I mean... If you're matching a liability, and that's the other thing to most people don't understand, and I hate saying that because most people don't care to understand it. It's not that they're not capable of, but the the profile of holders of bonds is much different than the profile of equity holders. Uh, If we look at the breakout, it's really the slow and steady uh, managers like insurance companies and pension funds, they're not you know, slinging bonds around. They're not uh, going long, going short. They have benchmarks. They have liabilities to match. And at our firm, we 
as part of our investment strategy, we said the bond market was inefficient and um, that uh, it, the reason it was inefficient is because we have buyers with and holders with different incentives, different objectives, uh, different goals. So if you're an insurance company, you're matching your potential liabilities and claims, a pension company. And that, those are those are the two main audiences that make up 80% of bondholders. Um, so that's something to, to keep in mind. Um, but back to the 60-40. So if my choice is, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you the question, because I like this um, two-way conversation that we're having, that when rates, when the 10-year was at 80 basis points, and your advisor would tell you, you should be 60-40, what would you you think? Yeah, I think that uh, it's way too conservative. Uh, You know, I I would think that, you know, especially somebody at my age, you know, I'm just under 30, is like, why why, uh, limit the growth of my portfolio so much by, by doing that, you know? And that's where I think that, uh, you know, uh, quite frankly, a lot of people in my generation, my age, that that's the way they've kind of thought because of the market conditions. You know, when I first kind of started getting in um, to the stock market, you know, I was thinking S&P 500 index funds and everything like that, seven, eight percent, nine percent return was good. Um, and then I actually had a friend who I kind of got started into investing like right around 2020. Um, and once he got started, he was disappointed that he only had, I think, like a 25% return um, for, for that year to date. So it's like something that, you know, where it's almost like a lot of people that, that just kind of got into it are kind of conditioned that this 0.8% return is just, it's almost useless. It's not like, uh, it's you know, it's not like anything that they really desire. They desire these big, giant jumps and that's where I think like right now we're going to kind of start to see that level off. Like the volatility in the stock market is probably still here for a little bit longer, but it seems like it's kind of going sideways for a while. Um, and uh, maybe we won't see quite as big of these drastic jumps that we're seeing. Well, um, you, 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 you kind of um, looking, you're looking at the 60, 40 from two, from two angles. One is an age uh, and a target date perspective, right? You, you, um, you want to have a higher allocation to equities. Uh, so you could have a higher allocation to equities because of your age and be able to set it and forget it through the cycles. Uh, but should you be forced if you're, let's say you're 65 and you need your money to last uh, for the next 20 years, um, and you don't have an, uh, you don't have a lot of money to throw away or lose. Um, how do you how do you view the sixty forty allocation then? And then the part of that is the other part of that is well because there's no alternative uh, to equities, I should have more equities. So we know that central bank policy uh, was intentionally trying to force people out the risk curve. They they tell us that. Does that mean if I'm uh, 60 years old and uh, bonds are providing no income and have a lot of duration risk downside that I should do the 60-40 and buy 10-year bonds? Or does it mean that I should forego that because there's no return there and boost my equity allocation to 80%? Or should I take that 40 and put it into cash, hoping that someday uh, yields will go up like they are today? So now we have income protection uh, on prices. And the other thing that people need to understand is that when a two-year yield goes up 100 basis points, you could break even today because you'll be down four points. Uh, wait, I'm not doing, uh, yeah. You're going to be down four or five points on, on your bonds, but you're getting a 4% coupon. Uh, if a 10-year goes up 100 basis points, you're going to be down, um, you're going to be down 10% on your price. 
So it's not equal when people, and that's why I hate when people talk about what do you think of rates or the treasury market, right? You really need to look at uh, the duration uh, impact or the uh, the, va- the price yield um, relationship when you're looking at bonds and breaking breaking even. So uh, now it makes a little bit more sense. If, if you're negative on equities, why not hang out uh, and get a 4.5% yield on a two-year, uh, depending on what you think your time horizon is for getting uh, back or increasing your equity allocation. Yeah, and, and I, I, I agree with you 100%. We actually had one question from the, the crowd. I tweeted it out uh, from Dan Wedge at Wedge Social. So shout out to Wedge. Uh, he's been a friend of the program for a while, but he did you know yeah. ask, the same along the same lines of you know if you're looking at it you know as how how does one continue to view an investment risk from a position of a quote 30 year old thinking more wealth than retirement i think you're kind of kind of nailed it right there right it's like it just kind of depends i guess what you're what you're looking at and uh you know your investment strategy i see like that's almost like you know kind of the general answer but you know if you want to kind of dive into that a little bit more as well you mean in terms of age or in terms of? Yeah, just like not only age, but you're looking at more, I guess, wealth building opposed to preserving your wealth. Um, well, because that's, that's so kind of- I'm going to ask you a question, right? Um, if you look at, and I had this discussion with some younger people who, uh, are really just trying to build wealth through their 401ks. But if you were to, if we were to do a poll, maybe we should do this poll on Twitter spaces, right? Um, How many trades, equity trades, do you do per year in your account? So if we would just take, I know Twitter spaces is a bad example it's like going to DraftKings and asking people if they bet but um but what would you guess the number of trades per year are the people making who are in these rooms with us probably more than that's that's necessary to be honest um would you you say it's 20 trades 100 trades 200 trades uh let's see i would i mean I would say we probably have some people that are some fiddlers in there. So maybe a trade a week uh, or pretty close to it. Uh, so like somewhere around the fifties. Um, and then we have some that probably just, just only buy and no, no trades um, or maybe make, you know, less than 10 uh, getting out of position, getting in a position, what have you. Um but I do think there's a lot of, you know, more, more so people with like options that are. Uh, Hold one second. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Go go ahead. But you know, I, I think that, uh, yeah, exactly. Like there's, there's some people that fiddle with it a little bit more and there's some people that just buy and hold. I think like we, there's a good mix. And, uh, but I think some of the people with the loudest voices are more so the, you know, maybe the options traders that are making a lot of uh, moves maybe daily or weekly or what have you. So but, yeah, good idea. another question, what percentage of people, that are doing sports betting are breaking even or doing better? Hey, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit of a sports better myself. I've gotten lucky, so I don't want to, I don't want to jinx myself, but I think that, you know, less, you know, the casino usually wins, right? So, I mean, that's why uh, there's so many of these popping up and, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's advantageous for these casinos is because it's difficult and not very many people are, uh, are winning. Right. So, um, so do you think there's any relationship between uh, the surge in sports betting and maybe um, a surge in trading? Yeah, and I think it's it's also kind of a surge in, in crypto, too, because I think a lot of people are, you know, the more so the like buy and hold strategy isn't as sexy. People think that they're maybe a little bit smarter than they are, you know, and, and the market isn't always predictable. It doesn't always make sense, but some people kind of think that, Hey, like, you know, you can figure it out, you know, 
it's always like the the sports gambler too. They always think they have like some insider knowledge or you know some something that they're going to get around Vegas, and then Vegas has a seven and a half point spread or six and a half point spread, and the game is you know finished by six or seven points, and somehow they figured it out really closely, and you just missed it, you know. So I think that at the end of the day. The market's been around for a lot, a lot longer. Um, you know, the, it's the famous Warren Buffett quote that you know, if majority of people should just buy the S and P five hundred and and forgive it, forget about it, and just kind of have trust in you know American uh, companies. But um, I think that you know, options trading has been really popularized. A lot of people think that they could all make money on it, and I think right now is a time where people are losing money on it because they're you know getting into uh, this kind of stuff. They maybe got into it 2020 during COVID um, and uh, everything was going up. And now it's kind of a little bit more variable, a little bit more sideways. So it takes a little bit more skill at this point um, and experience. Uh, and so I think this is a, an interesting time. And we're seeing, I think, a, unusual whales tweeted it out. A lot of accounts that got, I think it was like 40% of accounts that opened in 2020 uh, brokerage accounts have closed. And uh, I think of those 40%, like 30% of those uh, were millennials that just kind of started getting into it. So I think uh, maybe it's either a liquidation event where they needed more cash and they just couldn't really invest, or it's something where they got, maybe they were, you know, doing well at the beginning, but now they've gotten kind of discouraged. And they were uh, swinging at a lot of pitches. mm -hmm. Uh, They didn't like, um, walks um, yeah it's, new, it's a new baseball thing right you gotta it's home runs or home runs or nothing home runs strike out or walk chicks dig the long ball right bobby jay yeah. <laughs> three pointers yeah exactly right so um yeah i mean but i think it, it's an interesting time and it's uh, i think for you know i hope for the younger generation it's going to be a time of people learning and kind of taking the time to understand, you know, what's going on. And I think there's more of a desire for that. I'm seeing, you know, a lot of these Twitter space rooms pop up and I just kind of hope that, you know, we get people like yourself that have been in there for a while that kind of, you know, steer, steer everybody the right way or, you know, give their opinion of what they're, they're seeing. So. Well, um, the other thing is, I think the, uh, and we've all strayed from this, uh, the importance of saving uh, is is really under uh, underlooked or overlooked. And one thing I tell, um, I teach a finance course, uh, and when I talk the first day about the time value of money, um, and I point out that um, if you go for coffee or lattes every day, um, seven days a week, and you're spending $6 a pop uh, at a coffee place, $42 a week, if you take that money uh, and invest it at 8%, I'd have to redo the, the number, I'm forgetting it, that over 40 years, you will accumulate uh, $250,000 just by, um, by converting your uh, coffee habit or you know, takeout habit into uh, savings. So the time value of money and versus obviously credit cards and student debt, you know, that, that works against us too. So, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, you've been very generous with your time, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you one last question. I see you have a guitar back there hanging up on the wall. So what's your, what's your favorite track that you can play? Or, uh, you know, is it, is it more so maybe for, for somebody else that's uh, more of uh, the guitar player? Well, there's a couple of things back on the, the wall there that I have. Um, one is a painting painted by Grace Slick, who was in the Jefferson Airplane. She did a self-portrait that I uh, bought and it's autographed. Uh, the other is a Gibson J100 guitar that I bought years ago. That was a great deal for me. Um, and I grew up as a Who fan, but now I like a, a lot of new artists. Um, and I, there's also a, a letter back there from Pete Townsend, because uh, we used to exchange um, letters uh, about various things early years, years ago. And I also have a Japanese, a Chinese bond back there that defaulted. 
and um, it has the coupons that were never collected. So maybe awesome. maybe China will make good on that someday. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully that's awesome. But yeah, you got some great wall art back there. So if you guys are just listening in audio, be sure to check it out on video as well. And so Bobby J, with that, thank you so much for your time. Why don't you tell people where they can find you on Twitter and like what other stuff you got going on? Yeah, I'm at Reswat, R-E-S-W-O-T. That's actually a Who publishing company. Um, and the other thing I want to say is um, I, I think um, if I'm going to make a bad prediction, uh, it is that um, that the Fed is going to have to, or the bond market's going to have to switch from inflation fighting to financial stability fighting. They're going to get an incomplete on inflation. We can't wait for inflation to come down, right? And they'll prematurely, uh, the market will prematurely leave. And because of that incomplete, the long end will will sell off and the curve is going to steepen uh, next year. Awesome. Well, be sure to give Bobby J a follow and come join us on the Tuesday night spaces as he's, uh, you know, one of the regulars and always sharing his, uh, his great opinions on everything that's going on. And so Bobby, Brandon, thank you for improving financial literacy. Oh, uh, I mean, I can't take credit for that. I, I just, uh, you know, I'm a facilitator. I bring people like yourself. So thank you so much for, you know, always being so generous with your time. And uh, I think the audience is really going to enjoy this one. So, yeah, well, you're doing more than you're admitting here. And uh, if we can save anybody uh, money or in encourage them to save and invest uh, and, uh, you know, go from 60-40 gambling to investing, you know, that split should be the flipped around the other way. Yeah, so. exactly. Well, thanks so much, Bobby. Yeah. Jay. Take care. Bye.